If we read life backwards, we come upon a question. When then is analysis? We come close to it when we regard it as in an art and compare ourselves to artists. We look for our answers, don't we, in the life forms of other people, how they live, and not just what they write or say, hence the importance of gossip. We must know how to live analysis, how to live the anima, how to live the phallus. Or so said James Hillman. Hello, I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. This morning, on this 11-12-13, we consider, among other things, James Hillman, founder of the important post-Jungian school of thought, archetypal psychology, and we do this on this 110th episode of 42 Minutes with his authorized biographer. And in the spirit of the soul's imagination, as Jung once said, if you have nothing at all to create, then perhaps you create yourself. Good morning. This is Will Morgan coming to you from Denver, Colorado, and today on 42 Minutes, we're speaking with author, JFK scholar, and environmentalist Dick Russell. Now, Mr. Russell has written for such varied publications as TV Guide, Sports Illustrated, and The Village Voice. His books include Eye of the Well, Black Genius, and On the Trail of the JFK Assassins, as well as the New York Times bestseller, American Conspiracies, and 63 documents the government doesn't want you to read, both with the governor, Jesse Ventura. Most recently, Mr. Russell's penned The Life and Ideas of James Hillman, Volume 1, The Making of a Psychologist, published by Helio Press 2013, which is also available as an audiobook, and we'll be talking about that quite a bit today. More information about the work of Dick Russell can be found at dickrussell.org. Thank you for joining us this morning, sir. How are you? Thank you, uh, Will and Doug. I'm fine, thanks. And out here in Los Angeles, it's just the beginning of the day, and uh, looking forward to talking with you. You know, on such a big anniversary coming up for the the 50th of uh, the JFK assassination, even though we're going to be dealing a lot with James Hillman, it would be a missed opportunity to uh, talk to you about it today as well, though. And, and well, I'd be glad to do that. Sure, I'm I'm, I'm going to be in Dallas for the 50th and speaking at a couple of conferences there, and um, I I would say initially that you know we still haven't told the truth about what been told the truth about what happened to President Kennedy uh, 50 years ago, November 22nd, 1963, and and my work uh, along with many others has been dedicated to trying to figure out what really happened, and I am convinced that there was a at least a small conspiracy to uh, assassinate the president, and it's still being covered up to this day. In total, how, how many works on JFK do you have? I've written two books. My first one came out in 1992. It's called The Man Who Knew Too Much, and it's a great big fat book that's primarily, uh, fundamentally, the story of a spy that I knew, a guy named Richard Nagel, who had been an agent for the CIA and for the Soviet Union, and and uh, it's a rather long, tangled, uh, complicated story, but but he was definitely knowledgeable of Oswald, knew Oswald, was involved in a in a small plot where Oswald was being uh, deceived by two Cuban exiles who convinced him that they were Castro agents uh, to get him to participate in this plot and then become uh, the patsy, basically, the guy that uh, fingers would point to because uh, he had ties to Cuba and ties to the Soviet Union, even though it was really a domestically inspired uh, uh, assassination plot. 
So, so, so would your model of what happens, I mean, your own personal model, would it deal more with it's a military coup situation? Is that what you think happened? Well, in a sense, it was. It, it, and, you know, I'm not sure how high up it went. I know that there were renegade CIA uh, people and Cuban exiles who had been involved with the CIA and certainly mafia uh, figures who were involved in it. How high up it went, I mean, the cover-up had to go uh, right to the top. I'm, but, but that could be for different reasons. It could be because, uh, you know, the Warren Commission, for example, was told, hey, if we look into this, it's going to show that the Cubans and Russians were involved, even though they weren't. And uh, we could have World War III. I mean, you know, there were there were connections that the, the intelligence agencies had to cover up that they had with Oswald on different matters than the assassination. So uh, people were covering their butts um, in, in a lot of different ways. So then is reality stranger than fiction? Or do you – like the mythology of this, is, is this uh, – what kind of story is this? Is it <laughs> good question? I mean, you know, it's it certainly turned into a mythology, and and there, you know, there's been so many theories put out over the years, and and then, and so much evidence that indeed this was bigger than just this one so-called lone nut. Uh, even though you've had more books coming out in recent years by Posner and Bugliozzi and others trying to make the case that the Warren Commission was absolutely correct, but. Uh, you know, it, yeah, I mean, Kennedy was a mythical kind of figure. If you look back at, at Camelot and, and this, uh, you know, handsome family, almost, you know, very regal in many ways that were, were uh, in the first family of the nation. And uh, I also think that the country really has never been the same since that day and never recovered uh, from, from the trauma of what, what happened and then the other assassinations of the 60s. And and that until you know we come to terms with that as a as a nation, um, I don't know if we can really move forward. That's that's my myth mythological belief anyway. And then so here's also something interesting, and you have kind of a unique perspective on this as someone who's looked so deeply into a Jungian. Is you know where where do you stand on that reconciliation between conspiracy and then shadow projection on a world stage where some of this stuff is is uh, moving through these people more like diamond you know they're being yeah you mean like there's a a kind of a soul connection to the whole thing certainly the the nation's soul uh, was was uh jeopard in jeopardy that day and since and uh you know I, I but of course you do have a situation where there was so much shadow happening at that time in the, in the early 1960s you know, on the personal level with Kennedy, I mean, he had a he had a girlfriend who was the, also the girlfriend of the boss of the Chicago Mafia. Um, you know, his father's uh, uh, past with with certain Mafia figures. I mean, that's one side of it. But then you've also got, you know, what Kennedy was trying to do and and change uh, the country toward a rapprochement with Cuba and with Russia. And and you had all these hardliners, you know, people who just to whom he represented a a tremendous threat. And and uh, threat to the status quo, threat to big business interests in a lot of ways. And so, you know, you got a situation where there's all kinds of suspects. I mean, you know, he could have been uh, assassinated uh, by a cabal of, you know, people from that cut across, you know, from right-wing Texans to to uh, the mob to CIA. I mean, a lot of people hated him. And uh, and so you had that going on at the time. And, and interestingly, yeah, Jung's book, Memory Streams, Reflections, now that I think about it, I believe came out in 1963. And mm. uh, the other curious thing, um, 
is that, you know, that very day, November 22nd, um, two other people died. Aldous Huxley, uh, who wrote Brave New World right. and, uh, and was involved, you know, with some of the early um, psychedelic drug experiments, and C.S. Lewis, who, uh, you know, is, was a, a religious fellow but also wrote some, that remarkable scientific, I mean, uh, sci-fi trilogy, including that right. hideous strength, which, is, which looks at, you know, how evil takes over a, a country. Or, or the world. So it's interesting that, you know, these kind of cosmic forces, I guess you'd say, uh, came together on that day. Isn't that weird? Yes. And then mm. we also learned that there was an earthquake at Esalen in California, which we talked to a guy who uh, studied that kind of little um, oh, that's right. nexus point. I but forgot then about that. It's so fascinating because it mirrors in a similar way what was happening at Eranos. You know, there's similar magical places where you get these gatherings of really interesting people. Yeah, uh, you bring up Eranos, and, and probably most of your listeners have never heard of it, but um, it's, it's not really going on anymore. But back in the, well, starting with, with Carl Jung uh, back in the 19, uh, late 30s and, or in the early 40s, and then later um, with Hillman and others, for years, Eranos was this place that was on this beautiful spot, Lake, Lake Maggiore, uh, where, where uh, it Italian-speaking Switzerland meets Italy, and um, incredible place. And all these thinkers, very sort of an underground of some of the most brilliant minds in the world, from uh, Sholem, uh, the Jewish uh, mystic, to uh, to Henry Corban, who was from France and a scholar of Islamic mysticism, to uh, Adolf Portman, who was a biologist talking about all kinds of new things that had not been thought about concerning our relation to animals and what what animals are. And uh, and Hillman was there, uh, James Hillman, in the early, uh, I think his first talk was in 1966, and he continued to go there for 20 years and would talk many of the subjects that he later expanded into books about uh, his psychology. Um, he was the psychologist uh, coming to these gatherings. And um, they were, as I say, it was a kind of a mystical place anyway. Uh, it, it, Monte Verita, which was right above Aranos, was a place where... Uh, a lot of uh, mystical thinkers like Hermann Hesse and others had been drawn in the earlier part of the century. And wow. so it's a fascinating place. And I must say I visited there and that the energy is still there. <laughs> I mean, it was it was powerful. I slept in the room where I believe Hillman had, had stayed when he was there. And these were like two-week-long gatherings where these people would really get to know each other in intimate conversations. And um, so it was, yeah, it's still got that, that kind of magic to it. So <laughs> the, the organ is dripping from the walls? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of spirits in there, you know, from, but, which uh, uh, Hillman talks about, too. You know, his, the new book that has just come out, Lament of the Dead, which is a series of conversations that he had with Sonu Shambhasani, the uh, scholar, uh, the Jungian scholar who uh, assembled the, the Red Book, a uh, mm. collection of Jung's um, you know, active imaginings with all these figures uh, that finally was published recently. The, the Lament of the Dead talks about how, you know, we're we're not just living out our own individual destinies, but we're the product of of our uh, both ancestral and collective um, pasts. I want to compliment you on the the way that the book is written. I kind of feel a little guilty while reading it because I feel like I'm eavesdropping. <laughs> <laughs> how do you mean? It's just very personal. I feel like I'm digging through somebody's old letters or something like that. Oh, very... I see. But so you worked on this book for seven years? 
Yes, and in fact, I'm not done yet. Uh, this is just originally I was going to put all of the James Hillman's biography into one book, but it got bigger as I went along, and also at the same time, um, I wanted to try to f- complete something. But while he was still alive, he was very ill uh, in 2011, and um, I had worked closely with him on doing many, many interviews uh, for this book, as well as interviewing you know dozens of other people, and. Um, so, uh, you know, and he would read the chapters as I wrote them and then expand upon the various themes, which was amazing. I mean, to be uh, sitting with one of the most brilliant psychological thinkers of, of uh, the century and, and having him, you know, sort of relive his life and, and talk about um, all these things. So um, finally I decided, okay, I'm going to do two volumes, and so I still have the second one. I've written some of the second one because, I, as I say, I originally intended it to be all one. So I'm hoping in the next couple of years I will uh, complete volume two, which I'm going to, I think, call Psychology's Renegade. People have made that kind of connection. You you go from Freud to Jung to Hillman. Mm. But yes. his legacy isn't – in the world of psychology today, Is he is he known or is he someone that people don't know? In America, he's certainly someone people don't know. Um, I've been struck by how many you know people I've talked to who just never heard of James Hillman. And even though he's written 20 books and uh, more than 20 books, and they've been translated into I think 21 different languages, but he's much better known. Um, and, and people are very interested in him in Italy, for example, because you know he kind of harkens back to that to the Renaissance and to the imaginative possibilities that were aroused again during the Renaissance era. And um, also, he's very popular in Brazil, for example, and, and uh, that, that particular Latin American country. So, um, yeah, I found when I was traveling in Italy and interviewing people that just regular folks that I would get to know or see their, their place, they had all Hillman's works translated into Italian. So um, it's an interesting phenomenon, and, and part of my hope with this book was that uh, that it would you know, enable, just intrigue people to read some of Hillman's great books like Revisioning Psychology, which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in 1976, or The Soul's Code, which is the, the best-known book. It became the number one bestseller in 1996 after uh, Oprah Winfrey read it and had him on the show. So that's the power of Oprah. But it was it's great because it exposed a lot of people to to that particular book, whose, in, in brief, whose idea is that that we we come in with a what the the, the Latin word is daimon d a i m o n you know yes. which goes back to the Greeks and and it's about soul really and that in effect we choose our parents that we and the Hillman used many examples of quite well known people to show how uh, you know the the childhood experiences that we have uh, negative or positive are part of this um, soul uh, expansion that uh, manifests later on in life. In, in various ways, you know, he used musicians and actors and so on. But, you know, it's we all we all have this. Is his point? Could you speak a little bit to your relationship to him? Would did that happen as this became a project, or were you friends with him and then you you guys? I I, I don't know anything ab- ab- about that. But could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. It's 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 kind of an interesting story because back in the ni- it did evolve out of of a friendship, a relationship. I had no designs on writing a biography of James Hillman. I, I am not a psychologist. I didn't study psychology in school, per se. I think I took one course 
you know, I started out as a sports writer, and my books, as you pointed out, have covered a lot of different topics, and I've done magazine articles on many, many subjects, including the environment, a lot on the environment. And But anyway, back in the 90s, uh, mid-90s, my wife and I and our, our friends were reading some of his work and finding that it really resonated with us. And, um, and then toward the end of that decade, um, one day in the kitchen, uh, we were talking about him and this young man who'd who'd uh, grown up in, in my extended family, suddenly pipes up and says, uh, gee, my dad, and I knew his dad, uh, so, uh, knows James Hillman. He sells him his organic vegetables in the market in Connecticut. So <laughs> that was pretty cool. So I called my old friend, Wayne, and uh, said, gee, do you think you could maybe arrange an introduction to James Hillman someday? I love his work. And he was reluctant, but I sent uh, Hillman a copy of my second book, um, Black Genius and the American Experience. And he liked it because it was a lot about, I had chapters about ancestors, you know, of uh, like how Sojourner Truth was the ancestor of, of uh, you know, James Baldwin or something like that. Comparative Frederick Douglass Baldwin chapter, um, a lot about relationships. He, he was intrigued by it anyway. And so we ended up meeting for lunch um, with my wife and I and our my organic farmer friend and he and, and uh we ended up then um, meeting his wife a couple of years later and, and just became uh, friends over a period of time. He was 21 years older than me, so he was also, you know, much like a mentor in some ways. I mean, I learned a great deal from him about psychology and about life. And and then the way the book came to be was in um, late 2003, over the holidays, um, James Hillman's older sister uh, was there visiting them in Connecticut where when I was up there and and she was telling stories and I said gee you know you really should uh, should get some of her uh, memories on tape um, while she's you know still with us and so this gave them the idea to bring together um, his three siblings uh, his brother and two sisters and as many of his kids as could come uh, to a gathering at their home that summer of 2004 and uh, a young friend of mine came along and filmed the whole weekend. And as the reporter, um, natural reporter, me, I just asked a lot of uh, questions um, during the weekend. And out of that, the idea came that maybe um, he would do a biography and maybe uh, I would do it. Because, you know, I had no axe to grind in terms of psychology. Like I say, I, I wasn't even that knowledgeable about it, my wife, much more so than I. And uh, But I could write, and uh, and I was very interested in, in people and in him and his life and his work. So um, that's how it began. And this was a man who, you know, he wouldn't even allow his, his picture to be on the covers of his books. And he disdained biography for a long time. Uh, and he gave me a folder once of quotes about biographers, you know, uh, I think, for, you know, from Freud who burned all his papers when he was 29 to Joyce who said, called him, or I think it was Joyce who called him, bi or maybe the creator Peter Pan called him biographines. I mean, you know, he was not a, he was not somebody really into, into a biography. But we did it, and uh, and, and it was a, it was a remarkable, wonderful experience uh, for me. And I, you know, I traveled around all around the world, well, not all around the world, but to Europe certainly, interviewing people about him. And and uh, and as, as you mentioned, the letters, it turned out that this was incredible. That his, he had during the formative years of his life. Well, when he was before he was ever studying psychology at the Jung Institute in, in Switzerland, uh, he'd written this series of uh, every week or or more long letters to his parents uh, about his life and basically a full chronicle uh, of what he was doing and and they had saved them all. His mother had saved all these letters, so they had them and I could photocopy them and 
it was uh, and and I found out that everybody, lots of people, had had saved the letters from him over the years. So it was terrific to have uh, for a biographer, you know, to have access to all this original material, and and um, you know, it was it was great. Well, I had mentioned them before because. To me, when you do have passages from the letters and stuff, he seems like he's a very intimate person. Like, everything's pretty much out in the open with him. Did you find that to be true, or am I misinterpreting? No, I think that is true. I mean, I, mean, I, I think he was he was very direct. I mean, you know, sometimes this would be to... Uh, uh, he would get furious at people in, in lectures he was giving, and furious at stupid questions, I guess. He, you know, he didn't uh, tolerate fools gladly, and... Uh, uh, so, but he was a very, very thoughtful in his later years, mellowed quite a bit. I think he was known a lot of places as kind of a, you know, he could be really scary, uh, how he would, uh, react to, to, to some people sometimes, but he had deep, deep friendships, um, and, uh, was married, uh, three times and he was, uh, certainly very open with me and, and never suggested that even though we were, Working closely on this book, he never suggested that I censor the book. I mean, he wasn't telling me what to leave out, even though some of the you know periods of his life, anybody's life, are very can be very difficult and painful. But he felt like we should get into that. And in fact, he was a psychologist who strongly believed in the value of of periods of depression. That these were part of of uh, what contributed to. Uh, to the soul becoming more manifest in the individual. Well, and this is what struck me is that so this is this is a big, beautiful, wonderful book, and you've done such a nice job capturing both. I, I think good biography ends up, you know, able to take in the whole world because you get history from earlier times and this and that, and you end up with this this almost whole thing. But what struck me was as he's in Zurich, and you have who should be some of the most enlightened people of their time, and they have the most problems. So my question is, do you think that's because they're in contact with the unconscious, they're working with that? Or, you know, like the the uh, Reverend V story really speaks to this idea that, you know, are they doing harm or are they doing good? And they're actually the ones dealing in the underworld and trying to move through this uh, soul-manifesting material. Yeah, I, I, I think that has something to do with it. I mean, you know, there are people who are making the dive. And and um, it also has to do with, in the, in the case of the Jungians in Zurich, who Hillman found himself at odds with because he was much younger than a lot of them who had known Jung for a long time, and then Jung died in 1961. Um, and... and uh, you know, they were kind of the old guard, and Hillman and some of his younger friends represented the, the, the radicals, the revolutionaries, the ones who wanted to take Jungian psychology in a different direction. So, you know, you had that human thing, you know, of people just uh, uh, wanting to, to preserve the, 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 the legacy of Jung in the way that they perceived Jung would want to have it done. And and Hillman wasn't like that. I mean, he, he had great respect for Jung all the way to the end of his life, but um, he also wanted to take Jungian psychology in a new direction, and he, in a sense of he wanted to emphasize things that Jung had not. Um, he, he created the term archetypal psychology 
to differentiate it from Jung's analytical psychology, for example. Archetypal, you know, I mean, Hillman was very much into the, the gods and goddesses of, of the Greek pantheon, and it was sort of a polytheistic psychology, you know, where where he wanted to return them to the to the heart of of psychology and examine how ancient myths could could give us insight, you know, into today's uh, issues. And we that our job as people was to recognize that these timeless archetypal forces were at work within us and around us, and there was a lot of tension there. And um, Hillman, in his psychology, you know, emphasized uh, fantasy. He emphasized uh, the, uh, the, the the soul, the coming from the Greek psyche. Um, there was one wonderful thing he said. I actually have it marked here, and I want to want to just share it with your listeners because it's not very long. But he, uh, for Hillman, um, soul is not a substance but a perspective. And he said, "quote An inner place that's simply there, even when all our subjectivity, ego, and consciousness go into eclipse. It is also, and I love this." the imaginative possibility in our natures, that unknown component which makes meaning possible, turns events into experiences, is communicated in love, and has a religious concern. Isn't that nice? That's beautiful. In in terms of love, too, it seems like, uh, was it his first Eranos talk? He, he spoke about Eros and the psyche, but this was in direct connection with what he called his anima problem, and and then we find out that you know Jung himself had an anima problem that was the you know the result was the, the red book possibly or and you think of Faust or the Divine Comedy um, if if we were interested in his Hillman's relationship to his anima problem which which books would we want to look into? Oh, well, he wrote a whole he wrote a whole book called Anima, uh, which is about. Um, about that anima being you know there's anima and there's animus anima often considered but sort of misleadingly the feminine part of our nature but certainly you know it's also been considered the the part that the soul is connected to you know the feeling part the the part that uh that you know puts us through uh you know everybody has an anima and an animus i mean it's not just women and men you know one has one has one one has the other and uh and hill in hillman's case um you know he 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 did that entire book on the subject and also uh, went through a lot of this in his own life. I mean, and so did Jung with uh, the transference, as it's called, with, uh, uh, you know, falling in love with a woman, a woman patient. Um, and uh, you see this, you know, when you get close, intermittent therapy. And in, and in Hillman's case, it resulted, uh, I write about this in the book, he did not try to censor this, you know, in a in a huge scandal in Zurich where a lot of the old guard unions um, turned against him, even though they'd been doing the same thing themselves. Once this became public and Reverend V, as you mentioned, um, went on really a, a, a vendetta against Hillman, trying to get him removed as director of studies of the Jung Institute. It went on for some years, and eventually he was successful in doing that. Early on, you mentioned that as he became director of studies, in some ways he saved the institute. Oh, I think he did. I mean, you know, he was he was a young, tremendously energetic um, American. He really created the job, and then he went abroad. You know, he went to the U.S. and did a lot of fundraising uh, for the Jung Institute, which was seeking to carry on Jung's legacy. And Zurich was, you know, where Jung had been, and it was the heart of heart of uh, of the place. And there were institutes. Uh, springing up in other parts of the world too, and and you know New York and London and 
in L.A., San Francisco, and Hillman, you know, was 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 not only raising money in America, but he was also bringing in you know, remarkable new speakers, you know, people that that would he would introduce a, a new generation of of students at the institute to these people, and was very very intimately involved in teaching uh, classes there, and and. Uh, hadn't yet in the 1960s formulated what he came to call archetypal psychology, which was a bit later after he stayed on in Zurich but was no longer directly connected with the Institute. Did your perspective on individuals like Freud and Jung change during the writing of this? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I hadn't read a lot of Freud before. I had read Jung, and I had loved Memories, Dreams, Reflections, and I'd read other of Jung's works. Um I think I came to have more respect probably for, for both of them. I mean, not that I didn't disrespected Freud compared to Jung, but I was I was never a Freudian. I was much more a Jungian in the way I thought than a Freudian. And uh, But Hillman had great respect for Freud and, and his contribution to psychology and, and um, you know, the, what, what he brought to the, to the field, uh, including the, being the first one to really reintroduce the gods of the Greeks with the Oedipus complex and so on. And even though Hillman didn't, you know, by the whole notion that we we can trace all of our problems back to sexual, you know, uh, things when we're children and you know hang-ups on the mother and so on. Um, and that was, but Freud had a lot more to contribute than that. And you know, Freud broke with Jung. Jung had been a student of Freud's in the early part of the 20th century, and then and then they split apart, and Jung went off in his own direction. And Hillman, in a sense, did that again. And uh, you know, and as I say, that was one reason that he. Uh, alienated a lot of the uh, the more traditional Jungians who worshipped Jung really almost as a god, you know. I mean, he was he was a cult figure, a leader in, a, in that sense. So, um, and then once, you know, once Jung was gone, they felt they had to carry on his, his work in a very uh, rigid, kind of more structured way. But I get the impression that um, you found Jung appreciated and respected the work of James Hillman. He certainly did. I mean... It started, I guess, the first time he saw Hillman uh, was, uh, was Hillman did a skit in, in 1954 as a student at one of the annual, you know, events that the Institute had. And, and just really a satire, I mean, made fun of the Institute, made fun of Jung, uh, you know, had jokes about uh, Jung needing to get gold for his alchemy tricks. I mean, it was hysterically funny. And Jung was out there in the <laughs> audience and just cracking up. He thought it was just wonderful. Whereas a lot of the more conventional people didn't think it was so funny, but uh, but then they met on a number of occasions, and I tell all those stories in in the book, and and um, and Hillman uh, was writing a, a a thesis. He was both studying at the Jung Institute and also attending the University of Zurich to get a a doctorate in in philosophy and writing a thesis on emotion. And he had a number of fascinating talks with Jung about that. And I think you would say one would say also that. Jung definitely approved Hillman's uh, inventing this job of director of studies and staying uh, connected to the institute to try to move it forward. So, um, yeah, it was, I think. And there's a, in fact, one other thing is there's a letter on the wall of a guy that I interviewed um, in Chicago who had been close to Hillman and became a psychologist um, and, 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 and was also an editor at the University of Chicago Press. And Jung wrote this guy, Morris Phillips, in a letter praising Hillman. So, yeah, there was definitely a, a very strong simpatico relationship there. One of the phrases that you frequently use in the book is when reading life backward. Um, 
And what's so fascinating about this tale is that his life seems like a hero's journey. It's it's so varied, and the book has a really sensual first half and more of an intellectual second half. But uh, I'm struck by the literary quality of his life and the different literary figures that he was in contact with. For instance, could you speak of his indirect connection to Tolstoy? Well, that's yes, it's indirect because it's ancestral, but his uh, grandfather, Joseph Krauskopf, was... Uh, the leading reform rabbi in uh, in America, and um, had died a few years before James Helen was born. Um, but Krauskopf had uh, had gone to visit Tolstoy on a trip to to Russia, and and in fact was inspired by Tolstoy, who was a very agrarian fellow. I mean, out there working the fields as well as writing the greatest, greatest some of the greatest novels of all time, and uh, and and Tolstoy inspired him to start what was called the National Farm School in Pennsylvania and, and bring together, uh, you know, uh, Jewish um, young people to learn the techniques of agriculture uh, at a time when there was still a lot of anti-Semitism, especially in Russia, but, you know, everywhere. And um, so I tell that, that story and the importance of, of ancestors in, in Hillman's own biography. And, you know, he once said uh, something like along the lines of, of when I do therapy with people, I, I don't just talk to them about their parents, but I want to say, you know, what, what, what would it be like to sit down at a dinner table with your eight great-grandparents? You know, would you be able to, to have a conversation? You know, what, what we share the same food? I mean, what would it be like? And, and um, he there's a quote that he loved to use from the poet W.H. Auden, which was, we are lived by powers we pretend to understand. <laughs> I love that quote, too. Part of what he was was his interesting identity and how, depending on the context of where he was at, how it shifted a little bit throughout his life. Could you speak to his identity a little bit, especially, you know, as growing up where he did and then, you know, I think particularly of his Irish period also? Sure. I mean, in a nutshell, I mean, he was born and raised in Atlantic City, New Jersey. His parents owned Boardwalk Hotel. Um, so he was raised in this kind of fantastic milieu of the 1930s when Atlantic City was just incredible. You know, the boardwalk yeah. was teeming with, you know, all kinds of fantastic figures. And and then later, I mean, the fascinating thing about Hillman is he, he was always kind of in the right cultural moment at the right time, whether he, he, he was uh, in Paris during the heyday of existentialism in the late 1940s and all these writers were coming there, you know, Mailer and, and Capote and others. Um, and he, the cafe scene was just hopping. And then he went to Ireland uh, to study at Trinity College and, and was involved there in starting a literary magazine called Envoy with J.P. Dunleavy and, and uh, Brendan Behan, the poet. I mean, it was, he was there in this kind of uh, just wonderful, uh, you know, <laughs> aesthetic realm, which, which later became a hallmark of his psychology, the importance of the aesthetic of the... He, he, was, he wanted to be a novelist originally, and he then ends up going to Africa and spending a year in Kashmir uh, trying to write the great American novel. And uh, and then finding later when he had a had a breakdown and ended up in Zurich that uh, that you know he could actually write very poetically and beautifully about psychology, which is what he ended up doing. One of the big figures in this book is is his first wife Kate. Is she still alive? No, Kate died uh, a long time ago. Actually, she died very young, um, 
in 1980, as I recall. And uh, she was a beautiful woman from uh, from Sweden, an industrial, prominent industrial family in Sweden, whom James met when he lived in Paris on the left bank in the late 1940s in a cafe. And um, they ended up traveling together, living in India, then getting married. And uh, she was remarkable. I mean, she was, she was, um, uh, you know, integral part of his life. They had four children together, the only children that, that he has. And uh, and then, you know, she was also, uh, she stood by him through some very tough times, even the scandal that erupted in Zurich around him in the late uh, 1960s. And um, then eventually they did get divorced, and, and he ended up um, marrying Pat Berry, who was a great working partner and uh, in archetypal psychology and and um, is still writing and, and lecturing today. Well, that was kind of humorous to me. I was thinking of how there's the stories of all the astronaut wives that they would do things together you know the astronauts would go to their jobs and then the astronaut wives would do their things but i it when when the the students would come to zurich to do their their training with an analyst could you explain how the wives often were prompted to also have oh yeah yeah, um, in most cases. I mean, Kate went into analysis in Zurich at the uh, same time that James did in 1953, and uh, and she had the same analyst that he did for a period of time, uh, C.A. Meyer, who was um, once considered the crown prince you know, to Jung. Um, uh, it doesn't come off very well in my book, um, but I'm not going to get into all those details right now. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, but yeah, she she was right there, you know, doing uh, analysis and probing into her own depths at the same time as he was. Yeah, it's a fascinating place and time. And the book is well, mm. we we usually enjoy the books we read, but I can't highly recommend this enough. It's it's a wonderful book. So thank. It was you. a very easy read too. It was, it was it was very engaging. Oh, that's good. I, I appreciate that. I. I uh, you know, I, I tried to, uh, what was it, live up to what Hillman uh, called the introduction, the figure in the carpet, you know, which was, uh, the, the, that was what Henry James called the great question of biography. How do you how do you discern a definite pattern, a comprehensible figure out of a life? And and uh, that's what what, Hill, what Hillman continually sought to give me as, as we had our interviews together, was a wider perspective in search of that, that figure. And... Um, so it was a great privilege to be able to uh, to work with him, and um, and then to get to know all these people, and some of whom are still, in, you know, I mean, he he's gone now, but people that I met in the course of my research uh, are still very much uh, uh, in my life today in different ways. So that was great too. Well, you do a wonderful job of taking a lot of information and organizing it in a way that tells a wonderful story. What are you working on now? Well, I still have volume two uh, to do. I have a new book out with uh, Governor Ventura, uh, which was just, I guess, a couple weeks ago, just hit the bestseller list, um, called They Killed Our President, which is about the Kennedy assassination and sort of summarizing um, what what we know that points to uh, 63 reasons to believe there was a conspiracy, is the subtitle, to assassinate JFK. Um, And then I'm working on another project, which is a memoir um, about me and my son, but I can't really go into details on that right now but um but anyway it's uh i'm always spellbound uh, at how how varied your subject matter is is there a reason for that what is that just the kind of person you are 
you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I'm drawn to a lot of different subjects that interest me and, uh, including natural history and, and, um, you know, I did this book, Eye of the Whale, following the migration of the gray whales because I fell in love with these whales at this lagoon in, in Baja, California, where they actually come up to people in little boats and, you know, you're actually petting whales in the wild. And so I, I'd never thought about writing a book about that, but I ended up doing it. And, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I seem to be drawn to these different subjects at different times. Uh, I guess it's part of my uh, my soul's code, my daimon, you know, that I've I'm uh, I'm somebody who's not supposed to just fit in one field, and uh, I got to explore different things as as they come up. So, and that's that's you know I'm I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to to not just be uh, uh, known as uh, whatever you know a writer about X subject. And years ago, I was a sports writer. I left all that behind uh, fairly early when uh, in the late '60s and early '70s when things were changing and I was a midwestern kid who uh, suddenly realized there was a lot more going on than my little world of sports so I guess I've never kind of turned back from that sense <laughs> well we're very grateful for having the opportunity to talk to you today and because your subject matter is so varied I mean who knows we'd love to read another book and talk to you about it as well sometime later on well that'd be fine with me I've enjoyed talking with you wonderful that was 42 minutes. You've been listening to Dick Russell on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Russell can be found at dickrussell.org. And if it's the Jungian topics you enjoy, stay tuned to SyncBook Radio for our show with Dr. James Hollis on December 3rd regarding his book, Hauntings. For more information about the SyncBook, our guest, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we urge you to become a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website. Thanks so much, and have a wonderful Tuesday.